I want you to imagine with me that it's the end of time. And there's a, a great white throne. In front of it, there's a, a vast plain on which millions, if not billions of people, stand. Most of them stand there silent and humbled. But there are a few pockets of people where, where conversation begins, and it becomes apparent before long that the conversation in many of these little pockets is heated. Uh, it's even belligerent conversation as they, they talk. And the conversation in these pockets goes something like this. How, how does God dare to judge us? What does he know about the suffering in our world? One young brunette pulls up her sleeve on her arm and shows a tattoo from a Nazi concentration camp. A young African-American pulls the collar down on his shirt and shows a a mark where he had been lynched. He said, this happened for no reason other than that I was black. A pregnant young woman stands there and says, this, this wasn't my fault. She had been raped. What, what does God know of that kind of suffering? It must, it must be nice for a God who lives in heaven uh, so sweetly isolated from the sufferings of the world to, to judge us. It, it must be great to live in a place where there are no tears, there's no suffering. And the leaders of each of these different groups start to get together and they start to formulate a plan, something that they're going to say to God, something they're going to lay out there as a requirement, they think, for him to judge them. And, and they begin to come up with this plan. And with each line of their plan, the entire group of, of people begins to give a, a murmur of a, approval. Uh, the, the first line is, if he's going to judge us, he, he should first be born as a man. He should be given such a mission in his life that's so difficult that even his family would think he was crazy if he were to pursue it. He should be betrayed by his closest friends. He should be exposed to an unfair trial, an oppressive trial where there is no justice. And at the end of it, he should be condemned to death. And in that death, he should experience with all of who he is, what it means to be utterly alone and God forsaken. After that last line came out of their mouths, there was a long silence in the crowd because they all realized that God had endured all of that. Jesus Christ. Now, I've got a couple thoughts about that story. Uh, one is God is God, and he could rightly judge every one of us 
without ever coming into this world. It's not our place to tell him what he must or must not do before he can judge us. And we have no right to sentence him to anything. He's God. But here's the crazy thing. In Jesus Christ, he willingly chose to enter our suffering. And even more than that, to to take our place as our loving Savior. You see, he could have stayed in heaven and been a just judge. But his love wouldn't allow that. He entered our world and became our loving Savior. There's a chapter in the Old Testament that speaks about that suffering so clearly, so powerfully that many authors have called it the fifth gospel. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some have called this chapter in the Old Testament the fifth gospel. What's interesting about this chapter is it was written 700 years before Christ came, roughly. But as you read it, it's almost as though you were reading a newspaper article from the day that he died. It's that specific. And that fact has led many skeptics to look at it and say it must have been written later. And there was some credence given to that theory until 1947. Many of you know they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament books. And they found a copy of this passage that was written in 200 B.C., 200 years before Christ. It wasn't an original because it was originally 700 B.C., but it quieted anyone that would say, This was written after he came. One thing I love about this passage, we'll we'll get there in a moment, is that it's written in the past tense. And some of that, you could say, is just poetic. It's a very poetic passage, but it made me think, what kind of a God do we have (laughs) that can write something in the past tense that hasn't even happened, but he knows it will, and he orchestrates everything so that it will happen. Some have called this chapter the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. That's the prophecy that points us towards the Messiah. One author said that in this chapter of the Old Testament, we have the most profound thoughts of the entire Old Testament. It was referred to over 40 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament chapter. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. As we look at Isaiah 53, as you turn there, I have two goals in mind. Uh, My first goal is for us to slow down a little bit. I don't know what your past month or two has been like. Mine's been crazy. I want to slow down a little bit and meditate on what God has done for us tonight. I want it to be like uh, healing medicine to our souls tonight, just to slow down a little bit, take a deep breath of God's word. And second, I want us to think about our response to what we read here. Before you get to Isaiah 53, 
In chapter 52, verse 13, God the Father already begins to refer to this servant. The servant idea comes up over and over in Isaiah. And we learn in 52, 13 that this servant is one who would be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now, being exalted, that sounds like a sweet deal, right? Who doesn't want to be raised up? Who doesn't want to be honored? Who doesn't want to be glorified? But the exaltation is the end of the journey. And as we'll see, this journey that leads to the exaltation for this servant that we'll discover as Jesus Christ is anything but a sweet deal. But I want you to turn with me to verse 2 of chapter 53. And I want you to set your hearts and your minds on Jesus. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This verse tells us that this servant would grow up as a tender shoot. Now, if you're like me, I read tender shoot, and that means nothing to me. I read that, and it's, what, what in the world is a tender shoot? What a tender shoot is, do any of you do any gardening? Okay. It's an unwanted sucker. Okay, you know those plants? Uh, here's an example of it. I went to uh, the nursery here in PV once when we first moved into our house, and they were giving away a plant for free, which should have been an indication <laughs> not to take it, but it was pretty. It was fall. The leaves were all orange. <laughs> and so we took it home. I said, Carolyn, I got us a free plant. And we planted it on the side of our house in the front yard, only to discover that the next spring it had shot suckers all the way into our backyard underneath our fence. It was a sumac. Okay, I don't know if any of you have ever planted a sumac, but it took me two hours to cut this sucker out of the ground, and I had to spray every one of the shoots after I cut it off with, with poison to keep it from growing. Up the street, there's, there's a, a neighbor that we always drive by and say, man, um, that tree needs trimmed, and maybe we should help him sometime. Um, it's a nice tree. It's a giant version of this sumac, but there are like 30 of these suckers that have grown up around it, and it's, it's awful. Nobody wants them. You know, when you think about this as an illustration for Jesus, it strikes me as kind of uh, weird. You know, you want, you want Isaiah to say he, he grew up like a mighty oak. Or a, a towering evergreen. Those are things that people want. Nobody wants. One of these tender shoots. This servant, Jesus Christ, would be unwanted by many. It says, like a root out of dry ground. And what this really means is the place and time of his birth would be spiritually dry. If you know anything about Nazareth, it was a crossroads cesspool that was known for prostitution, Roman soldiers, even drugs. Some of the commentaries mention. Nathaniel, you remember what he said about where Jesus grew up? He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And then you think about this dry ground idea. You think about the spiritual climate that Jesus came into. You know, there were times in Israel's history where, where God's word was lifted up, sometimes in, under the reign of David. You know, God's word and the moisture, spiritually speaking, of his word was refreshing his people. It was central to who they were. But by the time Jesus showed up, if you remember, much of that spiritual moisture, much of that spiritual nourishment had been replaced by man-made rules and oppressive traditions. This is the kind of setting that Jesus came out of. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I read that verse and I wrestle with a couple questions. When you, when you go out looking for someone to hang out with, when you go out looking for someone to spend time with, what do you look for? You know, when's the last time one of you went on eHarmony.com and typed in, I'm looking for a man of sorrows? <laughs> we, we, what, what about uh, you go to a new area and uh, you start making new friends and how many of you are just naturally drawn towards someone who's always suffering through something? They always seem to be under the weight of something. Those are the kinds of things we look at in people and, uh, you know, we, we write them off. Someone that's characterized by those things, we, we might look at them and say, that's a weak person. I don't want to hang out with them. That's an undesirable person to be around. I'm, I'm not interested. I mean, how many of you would, would put those... On what, let, let's say you were part of a search committee for a church and you got to find a pastor and you're looking for qualifications. You think anybody on that team is going to say, I want someone who's a man of sorrows. Or would you write someone like that off as unable to lead? Would you write them off as unstable? It really makes me wonder what I would have thought of Jesus if I had lived at that time. And I know what I would like to think my response would be. I'm not sure. Not sure. In verse 4, we, we get to the core of the servant's mission. And if you take nothing out of this message, but just here in this passage here, starting at verse 4. Soak this in. So surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As I thought about that passage this week, I, I want to share three, three aspects. You, you could preach a whole year, I think, on this passage, but I want to talk about three things that I see. One, what we brought to the table. Two, what he did with it. And three, what the results were of what he did. Let's start with what you and I brought to the table. We brought our infirmities, our sorrows. We'll find out in a minute. That's talking about our sickness, our disease, both spiritual and physical. And I'll explain that in a moment. We brought our transgressions. Transgressions are those sins we do willfully. We choose them. We know it's wrong. Everything inside of us tells us don't go down this path, but we, we do it anyway. Our iniquities, that's just the sins that result from who we are after the fall. It's just kind of the things we don't wake up wanting to do, but we do. Uh, he says we all like sheep have gone astray. There's an article about sheep and shepherds in the U USA Today right before Christmas. It was kind of cool. Uh, they actually quoted the, the passage from Luke about the shepherds that heard from the angel. But they talked about sheep. And, you know, they're notoriously short-sighted. You know that, right? That they'll, they'll set their, their little heart and mind on a clump of grass. And they won't think about what's between them and that grass. And they'll often end up falling the rest of them will follow them. They'll eat noxious plants and they'll continue to go back for more and more as though they enjoy it. They get lost. He's saying that's how we've gone astray. We're, we're foolish. We're sinful. As each of us has turned to our own way. Now what did he do with what we brought to the table? says he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Matthew, in chapter 8, listen to this. He says that was fulfilled during Jesus' ministry before he died. Matthew 8, 16 says, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. He fulfilled that in his earthly ministry so I don't believe we have a right as believers today to claim that every one of our diseases will be healed. That was fulfilled while he was here. Now, eventually, eventually, we know that our bodies will be made right and whole. We can hold on to that promise. As we were, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The two words there, pierced and crushed, were the, the most violent, 
most excruciating words that Isaiah could have picked out of the Hebrew language to describe a painful and bloody death. He, he picked the strongest words he could think of. Crushed for our iniquities. To be crushed means under an extreme weight. And at first glance, you might think of the physical aspects of the cross. But some of what he's getting at here is the weight of my sin, your sin, and the sins of everyone who's ever lived upon him. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says he took our punishment. He was wounded and stricken for us. And I just want you to to listen to a couple passages from another part of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 14. As his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. That was as a result of his sufferings. The Living Bible, a number of years ago, looked at that verse and paraphrased it. They shall see my servant so beaten, so bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know it was a human standing there. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. One author said not only did they take away his, his legal rights through that whole process, you know those trials were unjust. They took away his right to be treated as a human, as a human being. They treated him as less than a person. It says he received the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter oppressed and unfairly judged, cut off from the land of the living, buried. And here's the part that ought to blow us away. I hope you've never gotten used to this. All this, even though it says he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That was essentially a Hebrew way of saying he was innocent. You can go from there and say, if he was innocent, he was God. Because they'd early said, all of us have wandered astray. This needed to be a perfect sacrifice. And yet he went through everything we just described. Verse 10 says, yet, despite he was, the fact that he was innocent, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That was extremely painful for the father and the son at that moment. It was the father's will and the will of the son because they knew it was necessary to restore a relationship with a fallen humanity. It was the father's will and it was the son's will. You remember what Jesus said in John 10? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. So what's made available to us? We've looked at what we brought. We've looked at what he did. And there's two things it says were made available. It says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
peace is available to us through what Jesus did. And what peace means specifically there is a right relationship, a a restored, reconciled relationship with God the Father. John 3.18 says, those who do not believe in Jesus stand condemned already. There's, There's an enmity between them and the Father. If that's you tonight, there's an enmity. And what this is saying is the punishment upon him brought peace. You need to respond to that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the second thing it says, by his wounds, we are healed. The fullness of God's blessing, it's so much more than what we often apply to it. Now we get to the exaltation. The second part of verse 10 says, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. In the Old Testament, the guilt offering was one of those offerings which helped uh, make restitution for the sin of an Israelite. The picture's crucial here. They'd often lay their hand on the head of that animal, signifying, hey, this animal is taking my sin and it's gonna be sacrificed for my sin. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Who are his offspring? Remember John 1.12? All who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believed, In Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're one of his offspring that he was enabled to see and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What's this talking about? The resurrection. The fact that he would not remain in the grave. He would see the light of life and be satisfied. There's a a satisfaction that happened at the cross. One part of which God the Father, God is a holy God. We don't like to talk about that, but Isaiah talks about it over and over and over in his book. He is a holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. And that holiness had to be satisfied. He could not just forgive us without that holiness being satisfied. God's holiness and his love are both very real realities. And and the only possible way for him to satisfy both of those was Jesus Christ, God himself, an innocent sacrifice. God the Father poured his wrath against sin on him so that he could show his love to you and I. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You go on to the second part of 11. It says in the NIV, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. But many have looked at that and said it's better translated by knowledge of him my righteous servant will justify many. That's not just talking about knowing up here that at some point in history, a man named Jesus died on a cross. It's 
talking about an experiential knowledge. It's talking about a trust on our part in this one who gave his life in our place. One man put it this way, the gospel is not that Jesus Christ died and rose again. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. Another man said that the gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what Jesus did. And it's only when we trust in that, when we look at that and say, I, I am sinful, I need a savior, and that that's who I'm trusting in to be made right with God. That's when we're justified. That's what this verse says, justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous. God looks at the one who has this experiential trust knowledge of his son and says, I declare you righteous, not because of your acts, but because of what he's done in your place. Verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. You start talking about spoils, it brings to mind pictures of, of military victory, uh, gladiator, braveheart, whoever wins the battle gets, gets the spoils. And the New Testament confirms that there was a decisive victory won at the cross. You remember Colossians 2.15, it says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his minions, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 1.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, because of what he's done on that cross, we no longer have to live in fear of what happens at death. None of us necessarily look forward to it, but the fear has been removed for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ. Chapter closes by reminding us why he was exalted. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That means he was identified with us. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I told you I want to start by meditating on that, just what he did for us. And I want to close by thinking about what is our response the first possible response is to reject or ignore everything we've just read and carry the weight of your own sin and the penalty that comes with it. That's a choice that God leaves open to you tonight. You can look at the cross. You can look at Christ. That's not for me. You can accept it. You can look at it as many of us in this room have and say, I needed a substitute. I needed someone to die in my place. My sin would have cost me everything. Jesus, I trust in your death and resurrection. You know what 1 Peter 1, 9 and 10 is? If, if we accept that, I want you to listen to this verse in 1 Peter. What our response ought to be 1 Peter 1, 9, and 10. 
there two, nine, and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're gonna be singing in a few minutes again. That's one opportunity to proclaim those excellencies. If there's ever a group of people in the world that ought to know how to sing and sing at the top of our lungs, it's a people that's been forgiven by a Savior who gave his life for us. We're a redeemed nation. If you have accepted that, I want you to rest in that, first of all. I want you to, this week, just meditate on how accepted you are, that nothing can change that reality because he took your place. But I also want to issue a challenge to those of us who have accepted. And the challenge comes from John chapter 12. It's a brief challenge. But as usual, Jesus is pretty poignant. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to, glor- to be glorified. He's looking at his death. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's, he's looking at the reality that when he went to that cross and died, there'd be much fruit. Many of us here are part of that fruit. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to issue a challenge to the, the ones listening on. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All of us want to be honored by the Father. But the question is, do we really really want to follow Jesus after everything we've just read? Do we really want to be on the same mission that Jesus was on of laying down his life for others? Uh, Romans 8 says, we'll share in Christ's glory if indeed we share in his sufferings. Uh, John 15, 20, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Philippians 3, Paul says he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and we all want that. But he goes on to say, in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. One author, a man named Francis Chan, who I certainly don't agree with everything he's written, some of what he's written has challenged me. He he, uh, had a conference painted a picture of Jesus on that, that whipping block. And he painted the picture. He said, imagine that you were there right next to him. A part of that as well. It would be excruciating. It would be horrifying. But he said, imagine if just for a moment your, your eyes locked, your eyes and his eyes. He said, imagine the intense fellowship of sharing that horrible experience together. He went on to say, when when you look at what Christ has done, 
what he did, the lengths he went to on the cross for us, the, the, the fact that he rose again, what, what would not make sense is that we looked at that and said, wow, look at what he did. I'm going to go sit in a service for an hour every week. And that's where it ended. That wouldn't make sense. The, the world would look at that and say, those people don't really believe that someone died and rose from the dead. What, they sit in a, a service for an hour every week? Woohoo! He said, what would make sense is a group of people believed that a Savior came and gave his life for them and rose again. They would go out and, and change their worlds. They would gather together, surely, but that would be only the, the tip of the iceberg. They'd be turning their world upside down. And that's why as, as we are on this journey of, of launching together the, the church next door, our, our, our thought is not, hey, let's fill up another building on Sunday because if that's all that happens, I'm gonna be sick. If that's all that happened, we wouldn't have done what we're called to do. This is great. I love being here with you, but that, if this is where it stops... I want to get off. That's why our mission at the church next door is to train missional communities to share Jesus in tangible ways. What those missional communities are are little groups of people with meaningful relationships that want to show Jesus' love to the neighborhood where they meet. They want to take it beyond that group. And there are seven of those groups in various uh, parts of coming together right now. Some of them are already meeting and you have a card tonight that says where those groups are, I'd like you to think about, hey, maybe I could be a part of one of those. That was cool. <laughs> maybe I could be a part of one of those. Maybe I want to, I'm ready to go beyond just being a part of a service on a weekend. And you don't have to be a part of the church next door to, to be a part of one of these groups. There's a communication card there that says, hey, I would like to join a missional community. I'd like to lead a missional community. If you say you want to lead one, we've got a training starting up January 27th. I was over at Cornerstone EV Free Church in Prescott last weekend. Brandon was there. And uh, we had seven families over there say, we want to lead one of these missional communities. So the training starts for them on the 27th. It's a nine-week training. You could be a part of that as well. We want to gather and go. That's the heartbeat of these missional communities. If we're gathering together, we also want to go. Gather and go. If we only gather, we're missing half of the mission. I want to close with one more thought about being on mission. If, if we learned anything about uh, being on mission from reading Jesus' account, it costs. It costs. And, and some of you think about a missional community and you think, man, the last thing I need is another night of being with people. I'm busy. But when you start living on mission, when you start stepping out and sacrificing your life for the sake of those people around you who don't know Jesus, you'll find out real quick you need a group of people that you can lean on. It won't feel like just one more check on your list. It'll feel like something you, you, you show up at because you need that night. I hate to overuse Chan at the end of this, but he has a way of saying things. He said, you shoot for community, 
in a church, you'll miss mission. If, if your goal is getting together, you'll miss mission altogether. But if you aim for mission, you'll get community in the process because you'll find that we need each other as we live that life that, that Jesus called us to. So I want you to think about, after uh, a few minutes here, the offering will come around. Feel free to fill that out if you want to find out more about those missional communities, joining or leading. Uh, right now we have a, a special opportunity. Jesus gave us a visual reminder of everything we've talked about. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, a way for us who have placed our trust in what Jesus did on that cross to visually remember what he did. And that's going to be passed here. We'll share that in just a moment. Lord Jesus, I want to take a minute and say thank you. And I pray that as we share in this visual reminder that you've given us uh, that would be more than just an exercise Lord. That, you, that you would speak to our hearts help us to examine our hearts if there are any in here who don't know Jesus this is not for you unless tonight's the night and you want to say Jesus I trust you I need that sacrifice